Thank you for letting me bring God's word to you today, and thank you for letting my dad go with me to California. It was a very uh, instructive and uh, convicting conference. Very good, very good. Um, Before we get started here, uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, we know that you are the creator of all things, that you are the great physician, and we know that you have told us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And as I struggle this morning with a weakness in my body of an illness, I pray that your strength would shine forth, that your power would fill me, and that you would not let uh, this frail body interfere with the delivery of your word. Amen. Turn to John chapter 11. In John 11, we see a grand drama unfold. God orchestrates some very trying events to bring himself glory, to bring faith for his followers, and to uh, demonstrate Jesus' authority as the Messiah sent from God. And in the middle of all that, we see this very unusual glimpse of this extraordinary display of emotion by our Lord. Starting with verse 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he left right away to go to Bethany. Right? Does your Bible say that? (laughs) No. So he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. Odd. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Let's pause there for a minute. What is Jesus saying here? And we've heard Jesus say that he is the light of the world. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is a common parable of the time, just meaning that you can get more done with light than you can in darkness. But he's applying it in a unique way. The light here, notice, is the light of this world, so he's not talking about himself, but the analogy he's making is to the light of his ministry. And what he's saying is that as long as God has something for him to do, and he's doing it, then he doesn't need to fear anything. He doesn't need to fear the Pharisees. He's going to accomplish what God has set out for him to do. They're not going to stop it. So what about the darkness? Well, his ministry is soon going to come to an end. And by God's providence, he will be in darkness and he will stumble to death. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. 
Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now Jesus has been ministering openly for more than three years. And in the eyes of the Jewish public, he has gone from a nobody to a novelty to a hero and maybe a Roman liberator. But in that time, he's also attracted the jealous eyes of the Pharisees. They've already tried to kill him once, and they're plotting to finish the job. Jesus was ministering in Bethabara, which is on the other side of the Jordan, about 20 miles away from Bethany, when he gets this message about the illness of his dear friend Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was not just another follower of Jesus. We know that Jesus, being God, is love, and that he loves everyone as he loves all of his creation. It was all created for his glory. But God does not love everyone in the same way. We know that Jesus has a special, intimate love for his church. For example, we read in Ephesians 5.25 that Jesus died for his church. And that that is the example that we as men should follow in loving our wives. But Jesus' love for Lazarus appears to be even more intimate than just that of another follower. Among the 12 disciples, Jesus was especially close to Peter, James, and John. But of those three, only one is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. The New Testament records only five people that Jesus is said to have specifically loved individually. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are three of those five. Notice that uh, the message to Jesus did not even contain Lazarus' name. Jesus knew exactly who they meant when they said, he whom you love is ill. Jesus had a very special relationship with these people. But rather than leave immediately to be by his friend's side during his illness, Jesus delayed for two days so that the purpose of God might be fulfilled. Notice that Jesus' deep love for Mary uh, and Martha and Lazarus uh, didn't exclude them from pain and grief. Nor should we expect to be excluded from pain or grief. Love and suffering coexist. Warren Wearsby comments that God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of this life. After all, the father loves his son, and yet the father permitted his beloved son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite in Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, we see that those closest to Jesus suffer for the sake of his glory because he loves them and wishes to build their faith. For the sake of God's glory, Lazarus suffered in sickness and died. 
For the sake of God's glory, Mary and Martha suffered the illness and loss of their brother. For the sake of God's glory, the disciples follow the master that they love into what they believe is certain death. What are you willing to suffer for the sake of God's glory? Are you willing to suffer the loss of a job or the scorn of your friends, family, and coworkers? And if the answer is yes, then do you share the gospel with them? Are you willing to suffer illness and death or the death of a loved one? Or is your faith in Jesus dependent on those things not happening? What if you knew that your suffering was for God's glory because he loves you? Would that make a difference to you and how you observed suffering? If you are a follower of Jesus here today, then I can assure you that whatever suffering you are going through or will ever go through is for God's glory because he loves you. Romans 8, 18, we read, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In Romans 8, 28, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not the things we like, not just the things we expect. All things, including your suffering, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 16, we read, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Now, Paul's writing this. And when he's talking about light, momentary affliction, he's talking about, you know, really easy things to endure like stoning to death and being flogged 40 times minus one and being imprisoned and being shipwrecked and being bitten by poisonous serpents. Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How much glory? an eternal weight, an immeasurable amount of glory that's not even able to be compared with anything you could possibly suffer. And how is that coming about? It's because of your suffering. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. As we look not to the things that are seen, we've got to have a heavenly perspective but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let me ask you again, in light of that glory that awaits you, what are you willing to suffer? John Eleven verse seventeen. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Travel from Bethabara to Bethany would have been a hard one-day journey. Now, Lazarus must have died the same day that the messenger left to tell Jesus of Lazarus' illness because Jesus only delays going to Bethany for two days. And the journey from Bethabara to Bethany is only one day. By the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. Think about that. That means that when the messenger who gave Jesus the message returned to Mary and Martha to deliver Jesus' words that this illness does not lead to death, Lazarus was already dead. What do you think that did to Mary and Martha's faith? What would that have done to your faith? Mary and Martha are not here blaming or criticizing Jesus when they say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're not saying, you should have been here, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. That's not what they're saying. It appears instead that they're making excuses for him. It's as if they're saying, we know that you said Lazarus would not die, but he was already dead before we got your message. And we know that if you were here, your message would have come true. It's an incredible statement of faith in what they perceive as Jesus missing the mark, right? Yet they still believe. This is why Martha says, I still know, Lord, that whatever you ask, you will receive. Even despite the death of my brother, which you said wouldn't happen, by the way, I still believe. So did Jesus really say that Lazarus wouldn't die? No. So the disciples mistook it, we read that, and Mary and Martha mistook it, but 
what Jesus said is that Lazarus will not end in death, or Lazarus will not continue in death. The word to the word that's described uh, will not uh, lead to in in ESV is merely esten in Greek. It's a state of being. Lazarus will not continue in the state of being dead. Is what he's saying. But despite their misunderstanding, they still believed in Jesus. Surely Mary and Martha consoled each other with this thought because they separately repeated the same statement to Jesus. But despite the circumstances, Mary and Martha continued to believe in Jesus. This is demonstrated by Mary's falling at Jesus' feet. It's not a posture of accusation. It's a posture of worship. And Martha's statement, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What did she think that meant? She wasn't expecting for her brother to be raised from the dead. Even when Jesus tells her, I'm going to raise your brother from the dead, she doesn't expect that to happen now. Oh, I know he'll raise in the last day. So what, what does she think that means? She must be thinking, I know that you are the Messiah. I know that you are the Son of God. I know that you could have kept Lazarus from dying, and I know that because you didn't, you had a plan. Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Incredible faith. Is your faith in Jesus absolute? Or is it depending on getting what you want? Do you only choose to follow and believe in Jesus when you're healed from your illness or when your child survives a tragedy? Or do you believe despite suffering and loss? In response to this expression of faith by Martha, Jesus declares that he is worthy of the faith placed in him. For the last time before his death, Jesus here makes a public declaration of his deity. In saying, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is not merely saying that resurrection and life can only be found in me, even though that is true. He declares, I am Yahweh, the eternally existing one, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the deliverer who appeared to Moses and rescued you from Egypt. I am the resurrection and the life. And in doing so, Jesus proclaims his triumph through this tragedy of Lazarus' death. See, the point of this passage is not that Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's that Jesus is the resurrection. What sort of impact do you think this statement would have had on Mary and Martha and the disciples if Lazarus wasn't dead? You see, they suffered the death of Lazarus for this statement so that Jesus could teach them, I am the resurrection and the life. They'll not soon forget that.
God orchestrated these events to powerfully demonstrate the significance of this statement, and he punctuated it with the exclamation point of Lazarus' physical resurrection. This is a lesson that they would desperately need in a few short weeks. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Interesting to note here, too, this is in relation to Jesus staying for two days. It is Jewish tradition to post someone in a Jewish tomb for at least two days to make sure that they didn't make a mistake and the person wasn't really still alive. So there's a reason that he delayed. He wanted everyone to know Lazarus was really dead. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, first century Jewish custom dictated that mourners and keeners be hired to loudly proclaim the grief of a lost loved one. In fact, it was pharisaical law that even the poorest of people were required to hire at least one keener, someone who cries out on the death of a spouse. Required. So the tradition of loudly wailing and proclaiming grief um, was common and was, uh, was being observed here. Uh, by Mary, by Martha, and by those who had come from Jerusalem to console Mary and Martha. Now at first we may think that Jesus weeps because he's caught up in the emotions of the moment and feeling the loss of his friend Lazarus along with the other mourners walking to Lazarus' tomb. But think about that. Why would he weep? For the loss of the company of his friend that he's just about to raise from the dead. He knows what's going on, even though no one else does. Why, is he, why would he cry about that? It's 
It's interesting to note here too that the weeping of the sisters and the others is mourning, wailing, like we talked about, the traditional cry of grieving. It's the word kleo in Greek. But when we see Jesus wept, it's a different word. The word used of Jesus weeping is dakrio, and it means to shed tears in silence. Jesus was not participating in their mourning. Something else is going on here. Similarly, the record of Jesus being moved in the spirit and greatly troubled is not what it appears. The word used of Jesus being moved is embrameomai. It is only used five times in the New Testament, and every other time it's used, it indicates a stern warning or a charge with displeasure. It appears that Jesus may here be rebuking himself, or he's, he's trying to keep himself from crying. He doesn't want to participate in this morning. Let's take a break for a moment from the narrative and think about what might be going on here. What happens to believers after they die? First, we know that believers go to paradise. So in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, we see that the beggar Lazarus in Luke 16 is in a place of paradise with Abraham. But since Christ's resurrection, we know that today when a believer dies, they are present with the Lord in heaven. <clears throat> in Philippians 1, we read of Paul's acknowledgement that it is far better for us uh, to be with Christ than to be here. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, the thing that I want most, is to depart. I'd rather die and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is acknowledging it's far better to be in paradise. And we say that's better, um, that people who pass away are in a better place. And for believers, that's certainly, certainly true. What else? Well, when believers pass away, they're free from disease and grief and pain. We're no longer afflicted by the things in this life which torment us. 2 Corinthians 5, we read that, uh, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord separated from that suffering and disease and pain of this corrupt, fallen world. 
What else? Well, when believers die, they are free from the daily struggle with sin. Paul himself, a believer by this point, writing to the Roman church, writes in Romans chapter 7, starting the verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And that struggle is gone. For believers who have passed on to glory, we no longer suffer with the challenge, the daily grind of fighting sin. We're also home, really home. In Hebrews 11, we read, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Stranger is someone who's a passer through, someone's just traveling through, it doesn't belong there. But an exile is worse. An exile is someone who's cast out. His own people don't want him. Go away. And so we are, strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a home. No longer being a stranger, an exile, an alien in this world, but finally, finally being home. And lastly, believers that have gone on before us have perfect communion with God. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will, be, I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. The, those of us who pass away have that full, perfect communion with God if we're believers. So in light of all that, let me ask you this. Why would we cry for a believing loved one who has died? And we miss them. And we grieve for the loss of their presence with us because we love them. But if you had the opportunity to bring them back from heaven, to enter this corrupt world again, 
to struggle with sin, to endure grief and suffering and pain, to have the perfect communion with God dimmed. Would you want that, really? How could Lazarus be raised? I mean, how is that possible? Think of this another way. Why is Jesus the resurrection and the life? How is it possible for any believer to go to heaven or to participate in the resurrection to life that Martha referenced? Romans 2 tells us that those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth will endure God's wrath and fury. They're not going to heaven. And there will be tribulation and distress for every human being that does evil. They're not going to heaven. Romans 3 tells us that no human ever does good and that the wages of sin is eternal damnation according to Romans 6.23. So guess what? We're in that spot. We're all in that spot. And every person born since Adam has inherited a corrupt sin nature according to Romans 5. We're by nature, therefore, children of God's wrath from the very moment of our conception. It is part of who we are as being human. Ephesians 2 tells us, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. The trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. Everyone. Death is a result of sin. Romans 5 tells us that. Death entered the world because of Adam's sin. And death, the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, cannot be defeated until sin, which gave rise to death, is defeated. So how is it possible for Jesus to make good on his declaration that he is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus? How is that possible? Romans 3 tells us, verse 24 to 26, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a a payment to appease the sovereign. God put Jesus forward as the payment to appease him by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. Now wait, wait a minute there. It's easy to gloss over that and think that this is just a demonstration of God's righteousness. That's not what's being talked about. Another way to read this is this was to, sh- to make God righteous. So how can a just judge pass over sin and not condemn it? He can't. That's unjust. He can't do that. There had to be payment. And so this, the sacrifice of Jesus, was to 
make God righteous in forgiving us because he would not have been righteous in forgiving us apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, now with those things in mind, let's go back to John 11. Why did Jesus weep? Before Jesus left Bethabara to travel to Bethany, he already knew that Lazarus was dead. He didn't cry then. As he arrives at Bethany and is greeted by Martha and then Mary, who are grieving for their dead brother, Jesus still doesn't weep. Jesus doesn't weep until he's told where the body of Lazarus is lying and begins the march to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? Isn't that the moment of triumph? And doesn't he know he's about to raise Lazarus? Of course he knows that. So why is it that Jesus cries only on the way to raising Lazarus? Walk through the scene with me. As Jesus is walking to Lazarus' tomb, He's only about three weeks away from being crucified. He's already told the disciples that he will be killed, but they do not believe him, or perhaps they don't understand. He has little time left to build their faith and prepare them for the horrific event that will shatter their world. This entire drama of Lazarus' death and resurrection has been orchestrated by God to demonstrate Jesus' power and build the faith of his followers for that moment when he will leave them very shortly. But they don't understand. The terrible suffering and humiliation that the Son of God, the creator of the universe, will endure at the hands of his creation, even at the hands of his own chosen people, will soon be upon him. The sinless Savior will soon bear the weight and guilt of the sins of those chosen for redemption before the foundation of the world. And because of that sin, he will suffer the full wrath of God For the first and only time in all eternity, the Son will be separated from the Father as God turns his back on the sin-cursed Savior. Also that Jesus is able to be the resurrection and the life. And so that God will be justified in redeeming to himself a people like us like Lazarus. John 3.13, we read that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 6.38, we read Jesus saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Unlike everyone else there, Jesus, the one who descended from heaven, fully understood the gravity of of the command he was about to issue to Lazarus. 
Jesus was about to call Lazarus to leave paradise, to return to this foreign, corrupt land that's not home, to again struggle with sin, to have his fellowship with God severely dimmed, and to again experience suffering and death. The cacophony of the mourners surrounding him would soon turn to shouts of astonished rejoicing and praise as Lazarus is miraculously drawn from the tomb. But for Jesus and Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus was a moment of profound foreshadowing of Jesus' coming death and great suffering for Lazarus' return to this life. It is a Is it any wonder then that Jesus wept? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made to redeem us to yourself. Let us learn to cherish the suffering that you bring into our life, knowing that it will work in us an eternal weight of glory and that you bring it to build our faith and make us more like you. Amen.